0: as Peter said, welcome this morning and thank you. Um, before we get started, I'd like to pray for us. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within my, your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. And make the book live to me. God, it's that prayer that we pray this morning that you would make your word alive for us. That, uh, we know that without your spirit moving here today that, that we will not be able to understand what you're having to say, Father, so we pray that. We pray that you would reach into our lives this morning, and that you would instruct us, that you would move us, that you would call us, and that you would renew us, Father. Thank you for all that you've done, and it's through Christ and in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you would, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 1. And as you turn, I'll set the scene for us. John is the author of our book this morning. He is, or was, one of the uh, intimate uh, members of Jesus' disciple group. This is the disciple who was there when he was raised, uh, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. This disciple was there at the transfiguration. He was the one who leaned his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Uh, Throughout the gospel, he refers to himself as the beloved, the, the one who Jesus loved, you can safely say that he was very close, a very close companion of our Lord. So when John wrote his gospel, he closes with a statement of his purpose. It says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose in his gospel is to introduce the reader to his Lord and Savior, but also to his friend. As Calvin writes in his preface to the commentary on John, the Gospels all had the same purpose, to point out Christ. The first three Gospels show his body, so to speak, but John shows his soul. It is crucial to John that we we not only know about Christ, but that we are actually introduced to Christ, that we know him. With this aim in mind, John weaves together in his narrative a series of signs that Jesus performs and statements that Jesus makes. In our passage today, we find both a sign and a statement, both revealing an aspect of the person of Christ. It's a longer passage this morning, but I think it's important to read the whole thing, so I ask that you bear with me. Um, I promise it gets uh, a little bit more than me just reading. Uh, So John 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed Lord with uh, ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Sorry, I thought I had to, can we go to the next slide? So, which is here on the right, um, Bethany and Jerusalem, they're about two miles apart. Jesus was in that area up on the right. And we'll get to, I'll explain this more in a minute. But he said, now, now Jesus was, uh, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying, Secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and she was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still at the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had not been there, or if you had been here, My brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He said, "Where have you laid him?" They said to him, "Lord, come and see." Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, "See how he loved him." But some of them said, "Could not not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying?" So Jesus again, being deeply moved, went and came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be such a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to, him, to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. So it's truly an amazing story, Right? I mean, in my mind, it kind of plays out like a movie. And if I could, with reverence, uh, walk you through kind of what I picture when this is is going. So we've got our opening act, and I think it opens something like a good action movie, right? They're they're providing some background to the story. They're setting up some tension. So as the lights dim in the theater, you see in a distance a group of men hurrying out of an ancient Middle Eastern town. The one in the middle is not rushed. He's casually walking through, but everyone around him is frantic. They're panicked. And they have good reason. Behind them is a crowd of people yelling and screaming, picking up stones, some throwing the stones at this group, uh, shouting things like, death to the blasphemer, and things like that. So they're in a hurry. The scene fades as the group of men make it out of the city, and they head east. And that's back to the map here. They're here, and they're going to start heading here. And this is the road that they're on. They're going from, from Jerusalem to, to Bethany. Uh, I'm sorry, from, from Jerusalem to Bethany beyond the Jordan. And that's what's out there. And take a look at the road, too, because it's all downhill from there. It's 25 miles of downhill road. It's easy travel. So that's where they're headed. And that's what you're seeing as they, they start to head down the, 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 the path. And so the, light, the, dims, the lights dim and fade. And then we come to the beginning of our story. Now we're looking at the same group of people, right? They're gathered in a shaded area near a river. Yeah, that's Jesus there in the middle. We're closer now. We can see who it is. And yeah, this area looks familiar too, right? This is uh, something we've seen in another movie uh, prior to this one coming out, maybe a prequel. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the place where John the Baptist baptized Jesus, Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's a very peaceful place. We see Jesus teaching. There are groups of people there, it's very casual. Every now and then someone brings up, in fact, we just saw a woman bring up a, a, a daughter to him that said, my daughter's sick, she has a fever, can you heal him? And of course he does. And they're very grateful. I said, it's idyllic, it's, 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 it's peaceful. But towards the end of the day, within the crowd, there's a small commotion. A group of men come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is very sick. He's not well at all, we just left this morning. They've been obviously traveling all day. It's 25 miles from from Bethany to, to where he's teaching. And Jesus responds, this sickness isn't meant for death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then he goes back to his ministry. This group of messengers must have been a little perplexed. Right here, they had rushed all day. Their friend Lazarus sick, sick enough that they realize they need Jesus to heal. And Jesus says, that's fine. He doesn't seem to care. Scene cuts. Opens with another caption. It says, two days later. Jesus is again with his disciples there in that same area, maybe after breakfast. He swaps his hand and says, all right, guys, get your things. We're going to Judea. Wait, wait, no, what? We're, we're fine here. We just came from Judea. Remember, they tried to kill you. They threw stones at you. Not a good idea. We're doing fine here. The people seem to like you. Let's stay. Jesus says, no, we'll be fine. Besides, Lazarus is fallen asleep, and i got to wake him up. If Lazarus is asleep, anybody can wake him up, right? He'll be fine. Jesus looks at him and says, he's dead. And all of this, is by, by the way, is for you. Let's go. So Thomas looks and says, all right, let's all go and die together. All right, scene fades. They start heading back west up that road now. right? They're not looking forward to that. It's a half a mile climb at least to, be, to Jerusalem. They're going from 900 feet below uh, sea level to about 2,000 feet above. And they've got this long walk ahead of them. So what do we learn about this opening scene? A couple things. First, Jesus lays out his purpose for what he's doing. He says, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. In fact, this is the purpose of everything that he does. We'll come back to this, but remember that this idea of bringing the glory of God underpins everything we're going to read today. This is the theme that John begins in his prologue to the book. In John 1, 14, he says, speaking of Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is the glory of God that Jesus is here to reveal, that he, the Son, may receive this glory too. He reiterates it in this high priestly prayer later on, saying that he came to to glorify the Father so that the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son could then glorify the Father. It's cyclical, it's a loop. But it shows us that Jesus is all about bringing glory to God. So Jesus states here, the sickness of Lazarus is happening that will result in the glory of God, as all things do. I think the second thing we see here is that Jesus is working on a timetable and a plan that we may not understand. What did Jesus the healer of the sick, the one who could have healed Lazarus two days before, what did he do? He waits. Two days. And finally he says, okay, let's go. The disciples were confused, right? They, they probably thought he had forgotten about Lazarus. right? He told them, Lazarus is going to be fine. And so when they're confused, they, they protest a little and, and say, why do we need to do that? He looks and says, I'm doing the will of God in his time. Do you remember, I'm the light of the world. While there is day, while God has me here, we'll be fine. We're not going to stumble. There will be a time when I'm gone, when I'm no longer here and the light has run out. And at that time, all hell will break loose. Now is not that time. He tells them Lazarus is asleep, which is a little more confusing, right? I don't blame them. They're they're confused. They 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 believe what they thought Jesus was telling them. Lazarus is going to be okay. Why should they go risk their lives? You see, there are oftentimes we don't understand what's going on. The disciples who had been with Jesus several years now still didn't understand his plans or his timing, right? They had walked with him and seen him do all kinds of different things, and often they didn't understand. So I get it. For us, we still don't understand. And these misunderstandings can shake us. For believers, it can cause us to wonder whether Jesus really cares. If he loves me, he wouldn't have let that happen, right? I thought he loved me. For the unbeliever, it could just reinforce the idea that there is no God, right? They believe there is no God. And if there is, it's certainly not Jesus, right? It's back to the same root of the problem. If God loves, surely he would do something about this evil, right? These are deep and important questions, and I'm not trying to be flippant, but I think Jesus seems to be pointing us toward an answer for them here. It's for the glory of God. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so you may believe. We're going to come back to this. As Jesus and his disciples set out, the air is gloomy, full of death, confusion. There's been an assassination attempt on Jesus, not far from where they were going. Another such such attempt wasn't unthinkable. Jesus' friend Lazarus had just died, which is confusing because they thought he told told him that Lazarus wasn't going to die. Lazarus died, Jesus almost died. They're going to die. Death was in the air. Why do they need to go, and why do they need to go now? So it kind of brings us to our second scene here, the arrival in Bethany. This is now in the late afternoon. Jesus arrives on the outskirts of Bethany. If the disciples felt fear that morning, it's very present now. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Death is all around. It seems that that Lazarus died in the morning that the messengers came, right? So by the time they got to Jesus, he was already buried. This is important. The the, the Jews, when they would bury them, they would bury bury the dead person within a couple hours of their death. It's a hot climate. Decay starts, and so they would put spices and stuff in their wrappings to help further process this decay, and they would put them in the tomb. And then for three days... Someone would go in and call out the name of the person just in case that person hadn't died, because that had happened. Um, Lazarus, you you okay? No response. A few more spices in the body, close it up. They did this for three days, and on the fourth day, they sealed the tomb. And they would leave it there for a year. The body would decay, and then after a year, they would take the bones out and put them in an ossuary, a bone box, and that's where they would keep the the, the bodies of their, their deceased loved ones. So he'd been in the tomb for four days now. The tomb is getting ready to be sealed. They'd gone in, and, and, and he obviously hadn't come out. He had died. Now, for violent, uh, death, uh, victims of violence, this wasn't necessarily true, right? I mean, you know that if, if there's a mortal wound, the guy's not coming out. But Lazarus had died as a sickness, so they needed to confirm. Well, he was dead. So as they arrive, someone runs off towards the house of Mar- Mary and Martha, and a short time later, we see Martha coming down back from the house. She approaches Jesus. She confidently states, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I know you can heal, but you didn't heal him. See, Martha is a doer. Right? She's hurting and she's confused. She believes, but she doesn't understand. She's a doer. She, would have, she says, if, if you had been here, you could have done something. Remember the last time we saw Mary and Martha. Martha was the one uh, who, when Jesus came to her house, that she was preparing uh, for Jesus' arrival. She was getting the food ready, making sure everything's fine, while her sister Mary, and we'll come back to her in a minute, wasn't. Uh, Martha wanted things to get done. And she wanted Jesus to heal her brother, and she couldn't understand why. Jesus, however, is working on a different plan in a different time frame. Jesus tells her Lazarus is going to rise again. And Martha says, yeah, that's going to happen, but it's going to happen on the last day. That's all that she seems to get, that he will rise. You see, Martha believed what the Scriptures taught about the resurrection. Right? She remembered the story of Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is my God, when he raised the widow's son. She'd been taught the story of Elisha, whose name means uh, Yahweh is God. Or, I'm sorry. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Elisha means uh, God saves. He says that uh, uh, when he raised the Shunammite, she knows these resurrection stories. She had heard the story or, or read through the Psalms and worshiped with the Psalms as Israel's greatest king, David, speaks of God not abandoning his soul to the grave or letting his Holy One see corruption. She was intimately familiar with Psalm 22, poetically describing the death and resurrection of this Holy One, ending with a great congregational praise. It's to this resurrection that Martha's looking forward. Resurrection was tied to the Messiah on the last day, and Martha longed for that last day. So the camera zooms in, and Jesus explains now, as she's standing there confused, I am the resurrection. Elijah, Yahweh, is my God, and Elisha, God, is my salvation, both raised people from the dead, but they were pointing to me, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, and it is by me that they raised them, I am the holy one to whom David points. I am the king greater than he. I am the one who will pull you out of this world of death in which you find yourselves. I am the resurrection. And what is a resurrection but a restarting of life? The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. Lazarus will live through the power of Jesus. But he goes on. He goes on to proclaim even more, I am the life. Not only do I raise you from the dead state in which you find yourselves, but then I give you life. This life is in the here and now. Everyone who believes in me will never die. You see, we all start out dead, but then those of us who believe are made to live. And once made to live, we will never die. Oh, a physical death, sure, but never that separation again. While Martha was talking about a future resurrection, Jesus explains that this resurrection begins now. It begins when the person believes. It's the person who is made to live by Christ. And this life is more than just the rebirth in John 3. It's not just the act of that rebirth, but the full life that's lived after that. And the life is lived in that power of Christ. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Christ not only causes the rebirth, but he sustains that new life that's born. Martha, your brother Lazarus is dead as you are, but I'm here to bring you both to life, a rebirth that will begin a new life lived in me. Do you believe that? She says, Yeah. So we see that Jesus is concerned about Lazarus and his death, but not in the way that we thought. Jesus wants more than a physical existence for his friend, he wants him to live. That's why he came. Jesus assures Martha that he is doing something about Lazarus' death, and he's meeting her need there. Martha seems to understand, so she runs up the hill to get her sister. And our camera pans back as she starts to move towards the house where she came from, where sister Mary still is. Follows her up the road into the house, and she's trying to be discreet. She's very aware that Jesus' life is in danger here. She doesn't want this crowd to become a threat or maybe just even a nuisance to him. So she sneaks up to her sister's side and whispers, the teacher's here and he's asking for you. Mary can't hold it in. She jumps up and starts running down the street to meet her her, her friend, her teacher, her Lord. And everybody jumps up and says, oh, I guess we're heading back to the tomb. So they follow with her, right? And she's hurrying down that road as fast as possible. Jesus hadn't left where he met Martha. She's rushing down and she gets there and immediately falls at his feet. And then she says the same thing that her sister did. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's driven by relationship. Remember the last time we saw them, she was the one at Jesus' feet, listening to the teaching, spending time with him, getting to know him and her. She's also the one who anointed him, uh, hit him with the, the oil and wipes uh, his feet with her tears um, later in, the, in this gospel and she and her company are mourning. right? It says that they're weeping. That word for weep there is wailing or groaning. It's a deep, heartfelt expression of loss. It's natural and proper to react that way to the most unnatural of things, which is death, especially with her brother. Now, we're not told what sickness overcame Lazarus. It doesn't really matter. What matters is it resulted in his death. But ultimately, there's a deeper reason for that death. Death, as, as I just noted, is the most unnatural of things. When we were created, humanity was created, it didn't exist, right? The, 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 the story of creation talks about life and talks about bringing it to life and, and has a, a paradise in which there is no pain or no, no worry or no death. Nope. It didn't exist. We weren't created for that. It was a perfect relationship with our creator, and he walked among us at that time. But then all things changed. Genesis 3 tells the story of how sin entered the world, and then it tells us that the punishment for that sin is death. So now Lazarus directly and this group of people who are there with him, the mourners, are experiencing the effects of this death. Now, I'm not saying Lazarus committed a specific sin, and that specific sin led to his death. But the punishment for all humanity, even all creation, for that first sin of Adam's, is death. That sin corrupted creation and severed the relationship of man with his creator. God no longer walked with him in the Garden of Eden. In fact, man was banished from the paradise. Creation has suffered the effects ever since. So how does Jesus respond to this wailing and to her questions? He's deeply moved and greatly troubled. Deeply moved means angered, right? He was so angry that he was physically agitated. And when the Bible says that he weeps, those were silent tears that he wept. It wasn't the mourner's wail, but there were tears of frustration, You see, Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves that whole crowd there. But he's crying not because Lazarus is gone from them. He's crying because Lazarus had to go from them. He is angry at sin and angry at death. Jesus hurts with them for their loss. Right? He sympathizes. But his righteous anger burned at the cause in that sin. He relates to Mary in her grief, but in an even deeper way. He, like her, longs for relationship and for something more permanent than what they're experiencing now. He longs for that relationship with Lazarus to be more than just having a meal with him now. He wants to have that relationship forever. So here we then have Jesus and his disciples, Mary, Martha, the crowd of mourners, all standing around the tomb. The mourners are wailing Mary and Martha are mourning. Jesus is silently crying. The disciples are standing at the back, taking it all in. But off to the side, we see a group of people, and they're talking. One of them says, See how he loved him? But then another with him says, Then why didn't he heal him? It's that same question of Jesus' love again. The problem of suffering again presents itself. Jesus has already told Martha that he's the resurrection and the life and the one who overcomes sin and death. He loves Lazarus and will raise him. With Mary, we've seen his righteous anger towards sin and death. Jesus loves Lazarus and so will defeat sin and death so that he can raise him. And Jesus hears this last accusation and then knows it's time to act. Move the stone. I picture him standing there Wet eyes, red-rimmed with tears, but he's confident. He's in control. He is standing there at the tomb, calmly saying, move this stone. It's time. Martha still has a little trouble believing, right? Like with us, her faith wavers when she doesn't understand instructions that God gives. What love and what mercy and what patience Jesus has with her, with us, when we waver, or we doubt when we forget. He's direct, though. Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And there it is again. The reason for Christ's coming. The glory of God. He didn't say, if you believe, you'll get your brother back. He didn't say, if you believe, you'll be comforted in your loss. He said, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Now, all those are true. Lazarus was going to be raised. They will be comforted but it is all to the glory of God. Jesus loves these people so much, and this love is so wrapped up in the glory of God. He loves them, so he reveals to them God's glory. He loves them, so he comes to them to reveal to them God's glory. He, Yahweh saves, the Son of God, comes to dwell with them, to reveal to them God's glory. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Leviticus tells us, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. That's Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the only way he can dwell with them, the only way that God can walk with his people again is to deal with sin and with death. And so he prays. He prays that the people would believe that he is the Son of God. His purpose is to bring glory to God, and God has brought this glory when people believe. He then calls Lazarus forth. Lazarus, of course, does come forth. The Lord of all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, the transcendent, all-powerful, almighty God of the universe calls his name out of the grave. Of course, he comes forth. Unbind him. And let him go. Yeah, he tells the crowd that, but he might as well have been telling sin and death. Unbind him and let him go. That Lazarus, he's mine. You have no claim over him. Unbind him and let him go. It's the climax. Jesus shows us that he is the resurrection and the life. He shows us that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus that those who would believe in him would have an everlasting life. The glory of God is displayed in his love for his creation, namely us. God's desire is to be our God and that we would be his people. It's been that way from the beginning of creation. Our rebellion caused that relationship to be severed, but God in his love takes that first step. He takes that step through Jesus to make it right. The suffering, the evil we experience, we brought that into this world. God is in the process of ending it. He demonstrates his power over sin and death in this resurrection of Lazarus. He demonstrates his love for us in this resurrection of Lazarus. He shows us his glory in the resurrection of Lazarus. So it's our closing scene. Lazarus stumbles out of the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes. Some of the crowd rush to rip the garments off. Most everybody is in awe, right? It's not every day you see someone get raised from the dead. They're excited. They're happy. They're celebrating. Mary and Martha have their brother back. Some in the crowd understand the true meaning behind what just happened. This man, Jesus, is more than a man, He is the power over sin and death. He is indeed the resurrection. He's the Messiah. The celebration is beginning as the camera pulls away. They understood whose presence they were in, the promised one from the beginning. He's the one who will crush the serpent's head. He's the ark into which the people of God flee for salvation. He's the ram in the thicket at Mount Moriah as Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. The man before them is the Messiah. But it's not the end camera pans to a different group of stern-faced individuals. They're starting at the road to Jerusalem just a couple miles away. They don't believe that this Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't fit the kind of of Messiah that they believed would come. Instead, they're going to go tell the Pharisees to report what was done. The scene fades to black and sets sets itself for a sequel. Let me give you a little spoiler. The resurrection of Lazarus was the last sign that John writes about. The people who went up the road to tell the Pharisees, when they learn about it, it's the last straw for them. Now they really begin to plot in earnest to put Jesus to death. This event led to the Pharisees reaching out to Judas for his betrayal. But in the final twist, the raising of this one, well, this, the raising of this one man, Lazarus, would lead to the death of the one who raised him. But that last twist is that the death of the one who raised him would lead to the, def- the, de- the defeat of death overall. His resurrection would bring hope to the world. Another little part here that's interesting is that this crowd, who now acknowledges they're in the presence of the Messiah, in a few weeks on Palm Sunday, this crowd shouts, Hosanna, save us, please. They're laying palm branches down to prepare the way of the King Jesus as he rides in on a donkey, a symbol of peace, into Jerusalem. See, we know that day is Palm Sunday, They knew it as the Selection Day of the Lamb. The Selection Day was about four days before the Passover. And the Jews would go out and pick the lamb as the the one they would slaughter for the Passover. And they would bring that lamb in and welcome him into their family. And then prepare the way uh, for that last sacrifice, representing the sacrifice of sin. This crowd who saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus is now outside Jerusalem, proclaiming him the Lamb of Sacrifice. Welcoming him, to their, to the, welcoming, welcoming him as their sacrifice. So what do we learn? John paints a picture of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus that we too may know Jesus and believe that he is the Son of God. You see, we all begin our lives as Lazarus, dead in the grave. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to come out. Jesus, in God's perfect timing, arrived on the scene, becoming Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus reveals glory of God to us, and in that revelation calls himself or calls us to himself so that we may glorify God as well. At the beginning of our story, the disciples were questioning Jesus, why are you going there now? Won't they kill you? The irony is that Jesus' plan was death, so that they may live. Jesus had to go there in his perfect timing so that he could die. Additionally, each one of them, except for our author John and for Judas the betrayer, died for the gospel as well. Each was martyred in the cause of Christ. John was banished to Patmos, and Judas hanged himself out of despair of his betrayal of Jesus. What was once a fearful thing for this group of disciples became less important than preaching to others about their Savior. I think, too, this sets us on a path down to think about that problem of evil. God does indeed love us, and that is shown in his sending his son, Jesus. In this story, Jesus could easily have healed Lazarus from a distance like he did with the centurion servant. But instead, he chose to to go. But in that waiting, in allowing Lazarus to die, Jesus was able to demonstrate the glory of God to others and then bring them to believe. And eternal perspectives allows us to see that the sickness and death of Lazarus underwent was minor compared to the eternal life he received. Sickness and death were brought into this world through our sin, but Jesus uses them anyway to bring as many who will to know him. Throughout the story, the mourners questioned Jesus' love. If he'd only come when we asked, if he only loved enough, you would have healed him. What they didn't understand is that Jesus' love for them was ultimately expressed only because Lazarus died. The crowd in Bethany needed to see the display of the power of Jesus, a sign that he would do for all of us. Lazarus' death and resurrection point forward to Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus did heal the sick, and he did that to show that he was the one with the power over sin. It wasn't the sickness itself that he was ultimately concerned with, but the underlying cause. To really show his love, Jesus had to die and then rise. So they asked Jesus all these questions, but now the question turns to us. Where are you? Are you in the grave? Are you waiting? Perhaps you're thinking you're just fine, that you don't, you're not really dead. But deep down inside, you know there's something wrong. If you hear the voice of the Savior calling, respond. Repent and believe. Come out of the grave into a new life in Christ. You see, one thing made clear in this story is that the gospel is Jesus. right? It's it's not a process we follow. It's not a set of beliefs we have to adhere to. It's Jesus. He's the good news. He's the answer to all of the questions asked. He came to bring glory to God by beginning a new life within us. He came to dwell with us as people that we may one day return to the garden from which we were banished but it only happens through Jesus. He died not to understand us better or to provide an example for us. He died because the punishment that we were due for our sin is death. Instead, he took that sin upon himself. He took our judgment upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself and suffered that for us so that we may live. And his resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. Lazarus' resurrection shows us what he can do. Jesus' resurrection actually shows us that he did it. What about to the believer? For us, a proper understanding of the resurrection changes us. As we just noted, Lazarus' resurrection points forward to Jesus, but it falls short. Lazarus eventually dies again. Jesus, on the other hand, does not. When he died, he needed no one to call him forth. He did that himself. You see, he is master Over sin and death. And that means everything. It gives us hope. We look forward to a day that we will be around sin no more. We look forward to a day that we will be reunited with our loved ones who died in Christ. We mourn our loss, but the grief isn't the end. We look forward to a day that our body is reunited with our spirit, reversing the effects of sin and nullifying that most unnatural act of death. We look forward to a time of perfect communion with our Lord and God. And we look forward to a time where God walks with us again, and he is our God, and we are his people. But this resurrection hope is not just future-oriented. It's here and now. The resurrection of Jesus and our unification with him is not a mere picture or a symbol or a representation of reality. It is reality. We are indeed united with him. Our resurrection has indeed begun our spirit is alive in christ and because of this we can't help but change the way we live here we begin to be more like him as we orient our affections toward him as we worship him as we read and meditate upon scripture as we pray and spend time with him we change and become more like him we start to act like him and only because the resurrection is real both christ's physical resurrection our current spiritual resurrection, and then the fact of our future physical resurrection, are we united in him? From this story, we can see ways that we will be like him. One, we proclaim the gospel. Right? That's what Jesus was here. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In fact, read all of Colossians. Uh, Paul's saying that given who Christ is and how we know him, we can't help but proclaim him to all the nations. When we do, we glorify him. And that is not only for unbelievers, but for believers as well. Because Christ proclaimed matures the believer. This gospel saves the believer from the power of sin so that one day the believer may be saved from the presence of sin. Two, we love others. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. When we seek justice, love mercy, walk under his lordship, we glorify him. When we feed and clothe and provide those to those in need, we glorify him. When we give our lives to others, we glorify him. Third, we make him our treasure. Philippians 3, 7 through 11 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Grow our affections toward him, because as we do that, we become more like him. Our heart is where our treasure is, and when we make him our treasure, we glorify him all the more. Four, we don't shy away from suffering. let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is that time of judgment to begin for it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who have not obeyed the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Jesus suffered a most horrific death on the cross. He suffered ostracization, attempted stonings, rejection. When we suffer for his sake, we glorify him. And five, we trust in God's timing. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we we have our opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Jesus explained at the start today that he was here on the Father's time, doing his Father's work. In faith, we can do the same. Our spirits have been resurrected already, made new and whole, saved from the punishment of sin. We live our lives now in this sin affected world, being saved from the power of sin. And we look forward one day to being fully resurrected, our spirits reunited with our bodies, to one day being saved from the presence of sin. And all this so we can agree with the hymn writer To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, our Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and for his resurrection. Father, that he, in his life here, lived a perfect life, the life that we couldn't live. Father, that he lived that life with no sin, perfectly obedient, and perfect relationship with you. But Father, then willingly took our sin upon himself and died on that cross to kill that sin. But Father then was raised three days later in the power of his defeat of death that we might know that hope as well. God, move us. Let this truth change us. Let us become more like you, Father. Help us to know you more because we can't do this on our own. Whether we believe or not, we can't do it on our own. We have to rely on you. Father, for people here who don't believe you, call them to you. Let them come to know you. Father, for those of us who do believe, continue to call. Continue to sustain us. Continue to help us live a life that honors you. Father, be with us this week. Be with us as we take, out, uh, or take our first step tomorrow. Help us to be about making much of making much of you. Help us to be about bringing you glory through sharing your word and showing your love to others. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you